and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, looking at the DFM market and what's going on under the bonnet of portfolios. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on AA's sister title, The Investor's Chronicle. And today I'm joined by Asset Allocator contributor Joseph Wilkins and Asset Allocator contributing editor David Thorpe. Both of you, how are you doing? How things? Morning, Dave. Very good, thank you. Yeah, very good. It's uh, we're doing we're recording this slightly later than we normally do, which is good for me because I'm not exactly a morning person. <laughs> so you're uh, you're sharp and ready to discuss the, uh, the well, le- well, less blunt rather than sharp. <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe let's dive uh, straight into things. There's plenty of interesting stuff you guys have been looking at recently. Uh, firstly, uh, I suppose one of the kind of uh, uh, interesting points of the year is when uh, what used to be called the Link Dividend Monitor comes out um, each quarter, now called the Computer Share Dividend Monitor. Um, but there have been some interesting kind of findings there relating to, uh, I guess, the top payers uh, from the UK markets. Um, Joseph, maybe you want to yeah. sort of introduce us to what you've been doing. Sure. Um, thanks, Dave. Uh, we yeah we read the report and. Banks are once again dishing out the most mm. to investors, probably unsurprisingly. But uh, HSBC is back on top as the biggest uh, dividend pair this year. And so we thought it timely to look through the income funds that we, that we track and see how exposed um, our DFMs are to banks in general and then more specifically um, HSBC. Uh, and actually what we found is that they're not that keen on financials and really at all HSBC. Um, so they're actually choosing more oil-based uh, income stocks such as BP um, and obviously imperial brands and p- cigarette brands like that. Um, so yeah, it was kind of interesting to see that actually HSBC is is now the you know the top pair, but it's it's hardly owned by by any of our DFMs uh, within the funds that they uh, they choose for income in the UK. I mean that's interesting. I guess that speaks to although HSBC only earns about sort of circa ten percent of its profits in the UK, with the bulk being in Asia and the dividends actually being paid out in dollars, which means that you get the translational effect if the dollar strengthens relative to sterling. Despite all of that. HSBC is still a UK stock and as we've discussed many times on this podcast UK equities UK equity funds have been sharply out of favor with the DFMs that we that we cover so maybe that's why although it's interesting that a lot of the other stocks that that you mentioned are also maybe viewed as old-fashioned sin type stocks mm. imperial brands uh, used to be known as Imperial Tobacco. Maybe they do sell other things than tobacco, but that's that's what they are. And um, you know, they uh, again that the fact that those things are the top dividend payers maybe speaks to some of the travails of the UK stock market. That it really those really are old economy stocks to a large extent. Mm. HSBC might say they're exposed to fast grown, fast growing, excuse me, Asian markets, which which is valid. But generally speaking, it is banks. Um, our sister title, the Financial Times, reported today HSBC have been fined for something that I think many fund managers have been worried for a long time about investing in banks on that basis that uh, whatever money they make, uh, governments and regulators seem to find ways to extract it before it gets to shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there any funds that are actually still, or at least within the kind of um, 
MPSs that we we monitor that are still kind of relatively gung-ho or a bit more overweight on sort of banks and that kind of thing? Or is it just a... Uh, yes, uh, Henry Dixon's um, yeah. man, Georgia Income, uh, chooses HSBC at a weighting of about 4%. Um, and most of their top 10 holdings are among the top 15 dividend payers in the well in that's domiciled in the UK um so they're cho- they're firmly choosing you know the big the big names that have been around for a while on on the flip side there's a fund that's been rising in popularity in our database called Montanaro UK income mm. which focuses pretty much exclusively on small and mid cap sources of income um and we spoke to the uh manager and he basically told us that there's there's plenty of uh, sources to be found further down the market cap uh, chain, uh, which was quite interesting because they, they are excluded pretty much from all of the big names um, and you, you struggle to recognise immediately, you know, uh, where they're getting their uh, dividend payments. But, yeah, they, they seem pretty confident uh, in that strategy. And that's been rising in popularity. I think it's owned by five allocators on our database now. Um, up certainly a few from years back so yeah that's an alternative way the thing about it is i guess that there are not many small cap income funds out there so if they're 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 competing for want of a better word probably not with other small cap funds but Mm. with with large cap funds and if those things have if those things are the jurassic park as they've been called Mm -hmm. by paul marshall the, the hedge fund manager who called the uk stock market jurassic park if montanaro is competing with the funds that do do the Jurassic Park stuff, then I guess it's got at least a USP in the market at a time when arguably there are too many of all kinds of funds. There are too many UK equity funds, too many UK equity income funds. At, at least that product has something to differentiate it. Yeah, mm. it can form part of a blend perhaps with, yeah. with a larger cap name. Mm-hmm. I feel like I definitely said this a year ago, but it, it will be interesting to watch those so-called um, multi-cap income funds. You know, they, they got so hammered last year. You look at things like the... Gervais Williams' Diverse Income Trust, I think, was probably the worst performer out of that investment trust sector last year. Um, but I mean, Gervais, perhaps there's a bounce back. Gervais's funds are very, very interesting in that they do tend to be top quartile or bottom quartile yeah, each time yeah. rather than pootling along in the middle. But he is he is a small cap guy, so to a large extent, the fate of his funds is very linked to the fate of small caps, even if it's called a multi-cap fund. Yeah. Would be my thought, but but it is interesting. And no, I don't think you said that Dev last year because I would have remembered because it's more interesting than whatever you did say. Last year. <laughs> but 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 um, yeah, no, that is an interesting point about those multi-cap income funds. What role do they do they have? You can take the Henry Dixon approach by the by the big names with the yields. The clients have heard of everything in your portfolio. You'll get you'll get the income more than likely. You can go the Montanaro route, which, as I say, is very differentiated. But multi-cap income, I guess, tries to straddle both of those. And it is an interesting point, Dave, that, uh, mm. that there are some of those on the market. And really, what's the what's the outlook for those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in theory, it's a good comeback play. You think the, the FTSE 250 got so hammered in the last year or so, so maybe that's an area we'll see DFMs sort of uh, move into again a bit more. Um, but speaking, seamlessly moving on to another area that is unloved, but actually has done very well in the last year. People never seem that convinced by it. But, um, you know, European equity has had another massive rush in 2023, performed really well. Although if you do look at fund flows, people continue to drag money out of European equity funds on a, on a net basis. 
Um, but you guys have been looking at one of the kind of, I suppose, the stars of that market in recent times, which is Novo Nordisk. Mm. Um, what's going on there and like, how does that relate to um, DFMs? Well, uh, Novo Nordisk, obviously the anti-obesity drug maker. Um, and they are competing almost exclusively with Louis Vuitton as the biggest European company in terms of market cap uh, at the moment. LVMH, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so we looked into which European funds are popular on our database and how exposed they are to Novo Nordisk as uh, individual stock. Um, and they are pretty, if you'll uh, excuse the pun, overweight to uh, Denmark and uh, Novo Nordisk in particular. Um most keenly seen in um, BlackRock European Dynamic, which is obviously mm. a mammoth European yeah. uh, That's firm. one of the most widely owned European funds among the allocators. That yes, yeah. yeah, I think about 11 allocators um, have opted for that. And yeah, BlackRock European Dynamic has 9% in Nova Nordisk alone, which is reasonably high. Mm. Um, but it has been totally justified over the past year. Um, I wonder how much of that is um, has has been you know stock price appreciation because they might not be allowed to have more than ten percent in a single position. So I suspect they wouldn't have chosen to have nine, and they may have had lot less than that, and it's come up. Yeah, nine, right on the, right they, the limit. They are quite a high conviction fund as well. That's one of their things. So perhaps okay. they perhaps they are running that winner. Okay, mm. might be a thing. David, do you have any thoughts on uh, Nova Nordisk as a? No. I mean, clearly, I think it, I, I do think it's humorous that the that the themes that emerge from the European equity funds or asset allocators like are uh, LVMH, which apart from making fancy handbags, the MH stands for Moe Hennessy, so fancy booze. So it's fancy booze and an anti-obesity drug. So you know you're getting both <laughs> you're getting both ends of the uh, both ends of yeah. the trade there. If you want, <laughs> drink you want and stay stops. slim, getting the circle of life. Right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but um, no, that is interesting. That one stock. I mean, it must be an enormous component of the Danish mm. stock market now, mm. but it is interesting that one stock has such an outsized position in European equity portfolios. It's also interesting, I suppose, just to consider um, how reliant European equity funds are on those top names, because there are a few kind of real stars. You also think ASML, that's a, a name that pops up in loads of global portfolios. Mm. I think, for example, Scottish Mortgage's biggest holding at the minute. Um, so how... And how reliant are they? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so very kind of fashionable <laughs> stock nowadays, I think. But um, yeah, um, moving on to uh, another name that is often found in portfolios. We a few when was it a few weeks ago had um, Terry Smith's always very popular annual letter to shareholders. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, what's what's going on there? Uh, well, I guess the the headline that many may have seen is that his. Fundsmith has underperformed for the third year running. Um, that said, it's still up quite considerably over a five and ten year period. Um, but the last three years, he has underperformed the index. And we were trying to figure out whether allocators would get sort of more fed up with that or whether they will double down and go, you know, we, we trust Terry Smith. Um, and actually, although there's been, I would say... Significant outflows on a sort of absolute basis. I think four billion was pulled from his wow. fund. Wow! But I didn't realize it was that much. the fund is still 
20 I think it's 22 billion in size. Yeah, for anyone, so else, four, four billion would be a bit wipeout. <laughs> yeah, but for him, it's what something like did we look at it as nine percent of yes nine percent yeah. of of the fund's size, which a lot of other funds out there wish they'd only had nine percent shrinkage uh, from it. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned the per- it, so it's underperformed for for three years in a row as well. Mm. Um, and I guess it's been caught. The wrong side of two two things really. One is the the boring in inverted commas growth stocks, uh, sometimes called bond proxies, which which uh, do populate the fund Smith fund. They don't do well in times of higher inflation. And then at the other side of it, there's equities in the world that have done quite well, uh, or that drove the slender equity returns that we've had have been some of the big tech stocks. And Terry has dabbled around some big tech stocks, mm. but he's not been as all-in as, as any global index, for example. Yeah, so he's been hit by two sides of that line. But the thing with Terry is he's never claimed anything other than that he would underperform in, in those circumstances, I think. Mm. The, the fund managers that we interview that are the most frustrating are the ones who you know, spend all of their time talking about how these precise circumstances are ideal for them, no matter how many times the circumstances change. <laughs> Whereas Terry was very clear in a piece he did with FT Advisor, another of our sister titles, um, a couple of years ago, that he would have expected to underperform in the market conditions that we were getting. But it is interesting that allocators understand uh, or seem to understand or appreciate that and haven't been heading for the exit. But uh, Dave, I know you've been looking at Fundsmith, uh, looking under the bonnet of Fundsmith a little bit mm, of late. Beginning to, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that, so, you know, what I'm interested in, I suppose what everyone's interested in is the uh, the outlook for that that fund and can it um, continue its kind of success of, of former times? Uh, and I suppose you just have to look at things like... Um, I say, what does high, what do higher rates mean for the portfolio? But also um, the perennial question of the fund is so big. Um, to what extent is that kind of limiting future growth? Because you know Terry can no longer buy some of the smaller, and this is very inverted commas smaller because they're still big global companies. Mm-hmm. But he can't buy as small a company as he used to be able to, and so on. And uh, just other things will be worth watching, like t- turnovers a bit higher in the fund than it used to be and that kind of thing. And how much do they kind of depart from one of their three mantras, which is do nothing, you know, they buy something, they hold it, and they just let it compound and compound and so on. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting. You think with a name like that, they can retain a lot of faith and goodwill with DFMs, and DFMs sure. tend to be a bit more, they will give the benefit of the doubt for some time before kind of questioning their choices. Mm, certainly, and... I think it was quite impressive to an extent that he's pretty much stayed out of the Magnificent Seven uh, with with a few dabbles here and there. Um, like soft. Yes. Meta. Small, I think meta smaller bets, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, I, mean, th- I mean, yeah. I guess the thing is, though, he, you know, he has always described his investment process in a way that if he was going into the Magnificent Seven, I think that would actually spook DFMs more. Mm. Because it's so inimical to what he professes to do in his in his fund, um, which is as as Dave says, buy buy things, hold them forever, do nothing. If he suddenly, you know, decided to be buying um, uh, stocks in areas or 
that are being priced to gain in areas as ephemeral, arguably, as artificial intelligence. That would be a long way from the from the Terry Smith, Fun Smith approach that he um, has very much made his hallmark over the over mm. the years. Mm. Uh, so, Dave, I think to finish, we will uh, we'll go to Italy, um, which is not something we discuss too often uh, in the podcast. Um, but we recently noticed an article that showed that the S&P 500 versus the Italian uh, bourse over a three-year period, the Italian bourse is actually ahead of it. It's actually beating it, wow. contrary to maybe popular opinion. Um, and so we were like, well, how exposed to our European funds to Italian stocks. And there are this particularly low exposure to Italy, despite its stellar returns over, over three years. Um, but one of the funds, Montanaro again, making an appearance with the kind of uh, the more niche calls. Um, and they have a 25% weighting towards Italian stocks, which is quite high. <laughs> it's very, it's very much overweight compared to the 5% of the MSCI Europe X UK index. Yes. Um, so, David, what, what what might explain this? <coughs> well, I think um, Ferrari is uh, you know not just uh, if if there are endorsement contracts out there, I am available. And uh, no, uh, Ferrari is obviously one of the one of the significant components of the Italian stock exchange, and the share prices of that company have have done very well. Um, and are owned in, in all sorts of funds. I mean, even Scottish Mortgage, which, you know, much of their rhetoric would, would, would imply that they wouldn't own anything as vulgar as an internal combustion engine car company. They have Ferrari. Uh, another company uh, that is listed in Italy is Leonardo, which I believe make uh, helicopters for military use. Mm. And the war in Ukraine has probably brought to the surface... Um, increased awareness in some European countries of defence capability and defence budgets and maybe that sentiment has pushed uh, Leonardo up towards the uh, towards the top of the charts and <coughs> therefore boosted the returns of the of the whole market indeed interesting so maybe something we'll see European funds uh, try and uh Move across to a little yeah, bit. Yeah, perhaps. It's a niche one, I guess. At the moment, it's it's very low across the board. Um, although those that own the Montanaro European Income Fund are obviously quite heavily invested in Italy, but that, it's it's not a wider trend at the moment. But who's to say? Yeah, yeah. I suppose those funds mainly seem to focus a lot on things like what Germany, France and Switzerland. Yeah. Thing, right? so, I think so, yeah. Yeah, maybe one to watch for the future. Indeed. Well, very interesting stuff, as always. Uh, I'm afraid that is all we have time for. So I'd simply like to uh, thank both of you for your time, for your interesting insights. Thank you. And thank everyone for listening. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 